Chapter Three of Star Hunter. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Leone Rose. Star Hunter by Andre Norton. Chapter Three. His head ached dully. Of that he was conscious first. As he turned, without opening his eyes, he felt the brush of softness against his cheek, and a pungent odor fill his nostrils. He opened his eyes, stared up past a rim of broken rock toward the cloudless blue-green sky. A relay clicked into proper place deep in his mind. Of course, he had been trying to lure a strong jaws out of its trap hole with hooked bait, then his foot had slipped. Rinch Brody sat up. Flexed his bare, thin arms and moved his long legs experimentally. No broken bones, anyway. But still he frowned. Odd, that dream which jarred with the here and now. Crawling to the side of the creek, he dipped head and shoulders into the water, letting the chill of the stream flush away some of his waking bewilderment. He shook himself, making the drops fly from his uncovered torso and arms. And then discovered his hunting tackle. He stood for a moment fingering each piece of his scanty clothing, recalling every piece of labor or battle which had added pouch, belt, strip of fabric to his equipment. Yet there was still that odd sense of strangeness, as if none of this was really his. Rinch shook his head, wiped his wet face with his arm. It was all his, that was sure, every bit of it. He'd been lucky. The survival manual on the LB had furnished him with general directions, and this was a world which was not unfriendly. Not if one was prepared for trouble. He climbed up and loosened the net, coiling its folds into one hand, taking the good spear in his other. A bush stirred ahead against the pull of the light breeze. Rinch froze, then the haft of his spear slid into a new hand grip. The coils of his net spun out. A snarl cut over the purr of water. The scarlet blot which sprang for his throat was met with a flail of the net. Rinch stabbed twice at the creature he had so swept off balance. A water cat, this year's cub. Dying, its claws, overlong in proportion to its paws, drew inch deep furrows in the earth and gravel. Its eyes, almost the same shade as its long, burr entangled body fur, Glared up at him in deathly enmity. As Rinch watched, that feeling that he was studying something strange, utterly alien, came to him once again. Yet he had hunted water cats for many seasons. Fortunately, they were solitary, evil tempered beasts that marked out a roaming territory to defend it from others of their kind, and not too many were to be encountered in cross country travel. He stooped to pull his net from the now still paws. Some definite place he must reach. The compulsion to move on in that sudden flash shook him, raised the dull ache still troubling his temples into a punishing throb. Going down on his knees, Rinch once more turned to the stream water. This time, after splashing it onto his face, he drank from his cupped hands. Rinch swayed, his wet hands over his eyes. Digging fingertips into the skin of his forehead to ease that pain bursting in his skull. Sitting in a room, drinking from a cup, 
it was as if a shadow picture fitted over the reality of the stream, rocks, and brush about him. He had sat in a room, had drank from a cup. That action had been important. A sharp, hot pain made him lose contact with that shadow. He looked down. From the gravel, from under rocks, gathered an army of blue-black, hard-shelled things, their clawed forelimbs extended, blue sense-organs raised on fleshy stalks well above their heads, all turned towards the dead feline. Rinch slapped out vigorously, stumbled into the water, loosening the hold of two vicious scavengers on the torn skin of his ankle when he waded out knee-deep. Already that black tongue of small bodies licked across the red-haired side of the hunter. Within minutes the corpse would be only well-cleaned bones. Retrieving his spear and net, Rinch immersed both in the water to clean off attackers, and hurried on, splashing through the creek until he was well away from the vicinity of the kill. A little later he flushed a four-footed creature from between two rocks and killed it with one blow from his spear-haft. He skinned his kill, feeling the substance of the skill. Was it exceedingly rough hide, or rudimentary scales? And knew a return of that puzzlement. He felt, he thought painfully as he toasted the dry-looking, grayish meat on a sharpened stick, as if a part of him knew very well what manner of animal he had killed. And yet, far inside him, another person he could not understand, stood aloof, watching in amazement. He was Rinch Brody, and he had been traveling on the Largo Drift with his mother. Memory presented him automatically with a picture of a thin woman with a narrow, rather unhappy face, a twist of elaborately dressed hair in which jeweled lights sparkled. There had been something bad. Memory was no longer exact, but chaotic. And his head ached as he tried to recall that time with greater clarity. Afterwards the L.B. and a man with him in it. Simmons Tate. An officer, badly hurt. He had died when the L.B. landed here. Wrench had a clear memory of himself piling rocks over Tate's twisted body. He had been alone then, with only the survival manual and some of the L.B. supplies. The important thing was that he must never forget he was Rinch Brody. He licked grease from his fingers. The ache in his head made him drowsy. He curled up on a patch of sun-warmed sand and slept. Or did he? His eyes were open again. Now the sky above him was no longer a bowl of light, but rather a muted halo of evening. Rinch sat up his heart pounding as if he had been racing to outdistance the rising wind now pushing against his half-naked body. What was he doing here? Where was here? Panic, carried through from that awakening, dried his mouth, roughened his skin, made wet the palms of the hands he dug into the sand on either side of him. Vaguely a picture projected into his mind. He had sat in a room and watched a man come to him with a cup. Before that he had been in a place of garish light and evil smells. But he was Wrench Brody. He had come here on an L.B. when he was a boy. He had buried the ship's officer under a pile of rocks, managed to survive by himself because he had applied the aids in the boat to learn how. This morning he had been hunting a strong jaw, tempting it out of its hiding by a hook and line and a bait of fresh-killed skipper. Wrench's hands went to his face. He crouched forward on his knees. That was all true. He could prove it. He would prove it. There was a strong jaw's den back there. 
somewhere on the rise where he had left the snapped haft of the spear he had broken in his fall. If he could find the den, then he would be sure of the reality of everything else. He had only had a very real dream, that was it. Only, why did he continue to dream of that room, that man, and the cup, of the place of lights and smells, which he hated so much that the hate was a sour taste in his fright-dried mouth? None of it had ever been a part of Rinch Brody's world. Through the dusk he started back up the stream-bed, towards the narrow little valley where he had wakened after that fall. Finally, finding shelter within the heart of a bush, he crouched low, listening to the noises of another world which awoke at night to take over the stage from the day-dwellers. As he plodded back, he fought off panic, realizing that some of those noises he could identify with confidence, while others remained mysteries. He bit down hard on the knuckles of his clenched fist, attempting to bend that discovery into evidence. Why did he know at once that that thin, eerie wailing was a flock-call of a leather-winged, feathered tree-dweller, and that a coughing grunt from downstream was just a noise? Rinch Brody. Largo Drift. Tate. He tasted the blood his teeth drew from his own skin as he recited that formula. Then he scrambled up. His feet tangled in the net, and he went down again, his head cracking on a protruding root. Nothing tangible reached him in that brush shelter. What did venture out of hiding to investigate was a substance none of his species could have named. It was neither body nor mind. Perhaps it was closest to alien emotion. Making contact stealthily, but with confidence, it explored after its own fashion. Then, puzzled, it withdrew to report and since that to which it reported was governed by a set pattern which had not been altered for eons. Its only answer was a basic command reaffirmed. Again it made contact, strove to carry out that order fruitlessly. Where it should have found easy passage, a clear channel to carry influence to the sleeper's brain, it found a jumble of impressions, interwoven until they made a protective barrier. The invader strove to find some pattern or meaning, withdrew, baffled. But its invasion, as ghostly as that had been, loosened a knot here, cleared a passage there. Wrench awoke at dawn, slowly, dazedly, sorting out sounds, smells, thoughts. There was a room, a man, trouble and fear. Then there was he, Wrench Brody, who had lived in this wilderness on an unmapped frontier world for the passage of many seasons. That world was about him now. He could feel its winds, hear its sounds, taste, smell. It was not a dream. The other was the dream. It had to be. Prove it. Find the LB. Retrace the trail of yesterday past the point of the fall which had started all this. Right there was the slope down which he must have tumbled. Above he would find the den he had been exploring when the accident had occurred. Only he did not find it. His mind had produced a detailed picture of that rounded depression, at the bottom of which the strong jaw lurked. But when he reached the crown of the bluff, nowhere did he sight the mounded earth of the pit's rim. He searched carefully for a good length, both north and south. No den, no trace of one. Yet his memory told him that there had been one here yesterday. Had he fallen elsewhere and stumbled on, dazed, to fall a second time? Some disputant inside him said no to that. 
This was where he had regained consciousness yesterday, and there was no den. He faced away from the river, breathing fast. No den. Was there also no L.B.? If he had passed this way dazed from a former fall, surely he would have left some trace. There was a crushed, browned plant flattened by weight. He stooped to finger the wilted leaves. Something had come in this direction. He would backtrack. Wrench gave a hunter's attention to the ground. A half hour later he found nothing but some odd, almost obliterated marks on grass too resilient to hold traces very long. And from them he could make nothing. He knew where he was, even if he did not know how he got here. The LB, if it did exist, was to the west. He had a vivid mental picture of the rocket shape, its once silvery sides dulled by exposure, canted crookedly amid trees. And he was going to find it. Beyond the edge of any conscious sense there was a new stir. He was contacted again, tested. A forest called delicately in its alien way. Rinch had a fleeting thought of trees, was not aware of more than a mild desire to see what lay in their shade. For the present his own problem held him. That which beckoned was defeated, repulsed by his indifference, while Rinch started at a steady distance to trot towards the east. Far away a process akin to a relay clicked into a second set of impulse orders. Well above the planet Hume spun a dial to bring in the image of the wide stretches of continents, the small patches of seas. They would set down on the western land mass. Its climate, geographical features, and surface provided the best site. And he had the very important coordinates for their camp already taped in the directo. That's Jumala. He did not glance around to see what effect that screen view had on the other four men in the control cabin of the safari ship. Just now he was striving to master his impatience. The slightest hint could give birth to a suspicion which would blast their whole scheme. Was might have had a hand in the selection of the three clients, but they would certainly be far from briefed on the truth of any discovery made on Jumala. They had to be for the safety of the whole enterprise. The fourth man, serving as his gear-man for this trip, was Wass's own insurance against any wrong move on Hume's part. And the out-hunter respected him as being man enough to be wary of giving any suspicion of going counter to the agreed plan. Dawn was touching up the main points of the western continent, and he must set the spacer down within a day's journey of the abandoned L.B. Exploration in that direction would be the first logical move for his party. They could not be openly steered to the find, but there were ways of directing a hunt which would do as well. Two days ago, according to schedule, their castaway had been deposited here with a subconscious command to remain in the general area. There had been a slight element of risk in leaving him alone, armed only with the crude weapons he could manipulate, but that was part of the gamble. They were down, right on the mark. Hume saw to the unpacking and activating of those machines and appliances which would protect and serve his sieve clients. He slapped the last inflate valve on a bubble tent, watched it critically as it billowed from a small roll of fabric into a weather-resistant, one-room, air-conditioned, and heated shelter. "'Ready and waiting for you to move in, gentle homo,' he reported to the small man who stood gazing about him with a child's wondering interest in the new and strange. "'Very ingenious, Hunter.' 
"'Ah, now just what might that be?' His voice was also eager as he pointed a finger to the east. End of chapter 3